Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup.com groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore and Tokyo. Today we have a special guest here, Leo Fry, who is the Deputy Head of Division at Germany's Relief Coalition. Welcome, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Leo. Thank you, Mia. I'm very fine and I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're so delighted to have you and I can't wait to share with our lovely humanitarian AI meetup members and audience your story. Do you want to just introduce yourself? Absolutely. To keep it short, as you said, I'm a deputy head of department for projects and quality assurance at what is here called Aktion Deutschland hilft, in short ADH. And my organization is a network of humanitarian organizations. You might be familiar with the VEC, which is the UK equivalent of my organization. And as I said, I'm here in the Projects and Quality Assurance Department, kind of being the hub point for our, I think, more than 20 member organizations. And yeah, my personal background is very diverse in many ways, but there's one very constant factor in it. Basically, I used to work and live a long time, especially in East Africa, and which is a region which is interesting in many ways, but unfortunately also an area where which is, depending on the country, pretty much disaster prone. And uh, yeah, that's like general theme in my history that I always try to be in contact with the, this area of the world. And yeah, it's a great job that I'm doing in the sense that I have uh, especially a lot of people from this area I can connect to and work with. And I feel honored to that. So we're going to talk a little bit about humanitarian operations and your work in East Africa. The education side sounds really cool. Bray University, is that where you studied? This is where I studied, exactly. It's a nice place. Uh, It has a very interesting history, actually. It's, uh, you know, Berlin as a formerly divided city and uh, before the 90s had, yeah, nowadays they have a couple of universities, but back then they always had this one university on the on the eastern side and one on the western side. This one is the western one. And it was actually a very important, yeah, pop point, or I don't know how to call it, the very important center when you had all these protests going on. Yeah, they, they love to protest there. Yeah, very, and even in the time when I studied, I finished studying there, I think, at 2010. We had a lot of debates going on, for example, about uh, study fees and these type of things. And there were a lot of protests going on, people occupying the similar place or whatever. It was very interesting. And it's very strong in political science. Me, myself, I studied economics there. They have a strong... Institute also for Development Economics. I can highly recommend this. And yeah, that's where I studied. Well, I applaud that. And I actually Mm. went to a university that was free. And Mm. it it just doesn't. And that's in South Australia, Flinders University. And Mm -hmm. it just makes sense, doesn't it? You know, just free education. But that you had to fight for that. And I see it was founded in 1948. So it's quite the um, history. It's seen a lot of change. 
Yeah, so the principles of freedom and internationality have guided the university's development ever since, I believe. Yeah, that's true. They have this JFK Institute for, for American Studies and also connected to economics. And, for example, the, the institute that I was partially studying at is, uh, is actually for Latin American studies and in American economics. And uh, in the end, I found myself writing my diploma thesis about basically economic development and financial markets in East Africa for a guy who was an expert in East Asia, mostly China economics at this Latin American Institute and based in Europe. So it was like, yeah, it was pretty much connected to many places. <laughs> So it kind of just opened up your world. Definitely. And we're going to talk about East Africa, but I think before we get to talk about that, do you mind just sharing a little bit and um, telling us about Aktion Deutschland helped Germany's relief coalition? Is that right? That's uh, right, exactly. We usually go for the, a bit like Medicine Sans Frontières, the uh, Doctors Without Borders, MSF guys. We also often use the German abbreviation, so ADH for Aktion Deutschland Hilft is what we are called, but the English name is usually Germany's Relief Coalition. That's uh, correct. Um, as I said, it was founded, I think, almost 20 years ago. We're having some kind of anniversary starting next year and also some interesting activities coming up uh, next year. And uh, back to the core idea of our organization. It is a network of, I don't want to be wrong here, it's also a bit dynamic. I think we're 22 member organizations right now. It's the original idea is, is yeah, as I said, bit borrowed from the, the so-called disaster emergency committee in, in uh, UK, which follows the same principle. It was an organization which was First of all, build around the idea to collectively collect donations from private pr public and provide also some kind of independent funding stream for humanitarian activities. We can will definitely come to this point, the use of this point later. But that was the first purpose. But uh, when the organization was founded, there was another decision made which makes ADH pretty unique, and that was the idea that we. The organization is not only supposed to collect donations collectively, but also create a strong network of interaction between our member organizations and to do collective QA quality assurance. That's why my um, department, is, which was founded yeah, like 10 years ago, is called uh, yeah, Projects and Quality Assurance. So we do not only collect donations. This is an important part because it's, it's like uh, fundraising is, an, is a, yeah, money is important, as we all know. But there's still a lot of uh, coordination, interaction between the member organizations. What would a typical day look like for you? If my daughter would sit next to me and if she would watch what I'm doing, she would see me yeah, a lot in front of uh, a telephone and like here in calls and uh, writing emails and these type of things. Um, actually, it's really hard to tell because we have something which is in German called an Einsatzfall. It's a fund appeal if we have uh, something, a huge disaster happening. And depending on the question, if we are in time where we have such a situation or not, my workday looks a lot different. For example, if we are in a quiet phase, my work is a lot like that of a 
donor in humanitarian activities that we receive proposals for projects, we negotiate, we talk about upsides and downsides of certain approaches in humanitarian projects. We allocate funds, send money to our member organizations, do evaluation, organize evaluations of projects or not projects, but bigger appeals, uh, groups of projects, let's say. And But if we have such a situation like, for example, Beirut, we work a lot about connecting member organizations, talking to them, getting information and informing certain people about what's going on and of course going if necessary going to the field and there we usually work as or I work as a liaison position we can connect the the dots in our network it depends <laughs> it's the quick answer so leo just super fascinating what you just brought up about beirut and how did that all work was there a coalition involved did you collaborate with anyone? What did that look like? Yeah, in the case of Beirut, and this will be probably a, a general theme in what I will tell you in the next minutes, um, every disaster is in its own way pretty unique, yeah? And each time you find something which is very surprising. For example, in the case of Beirut, we had this blast and Actually, I must admit from our point of view as a network, it was really not clear in the first place if this was really work for us. Yeah, because, you know, if you look at the, um, we, we are constantly scanning data about smaller disasters and they are there all the time. But even though we may have a situation which is terrible, as long as there's media coverage or uh, our member organizations are not present, it's hard to get active. Yeah, In the case of Lebanon, it's a special, special situation because it's like a hub point for the Syria crisis, especially in the humanitarian context. So it has always been a focus of our network uh, since uh, we started the intervention in the context of Syria. However, there was this blast. And then I must admit my first estimation was, okay, that looked horrible, but is there something we could do? But um, this changed very, very quickly. And what happened was that we checked with our member organizations. Okay, are you there? Uh, who is where? And we collected the, the information quite quickly. And then we decided, okay, um, this is for our board of directors to decide. They did it very quickly. And that's a great thing. They decided, yeah, we go out with a fund appeal. And then at the next step, we... We have like uh, joint phone calls where we get informed and our organizations can share concerns or problems. And uh, yeah, it's a mixture of working together and working alone. And there's one very important aspect here at play. Coordination Yeah, is the key point. We are a, bit, a little bit like a second layer of coordination. And uh, usually uh, the official mandate for coordination is the UN. And we have this cluster system, I think you, you know about all of this, uh, where for certain sectors and humanitarian assistance, there are groups. Usually they form like a, you have a disaster and then there's a so-called EOC, Emergency Operations Center, and there everyone gathers and they meet physically or form WhatsApp groups and they coordinate. But we are like another coordination layer here usually which has one advantage and that is a lot of trust and our organizations have a very trust 
with the relationship and we can share information that you cannot share on other channels. And yeah, the, and this was the usual way to go in the context of Beirut, Lebanon, for example. Another example was uh, Nepal, where you had this earthquake, I think it was four years ago, I suppose. That's It's... come up in a previous podcast. We want to talk about how you build trust. About trust, yeah. In, in general, building up trust is an essential component of our network, I think. It's uh, like a USP, if you like, that we can share things that did not work as well as things that worked. Um, I must admit, I speak from a certain perspective here and full disclosure here. I'm one of those people who believe that humanitarian assistance in its very essence is very chaotic and there are a lot of compromises you have to do and a lot of things could be approved. But it's very difficult. <laughs> and this is especially something that you see when you work closer to the people that are affected by disasters. Me in my current position, I must admit, I'm more a headquarter guy. Yeah, I'm now more further away from the people affected by disasters. But nevertheless, I have this point of view that when you look at what's going on, it's chaotic and a lot of things, a lot of improvisation, a lot of... Um, good enough approaches in various senses. And of course, if you talk to other people about this, you may get another point of view, yeah? I, no offense for our friends from the United Nations side, uh, they're doing great job and great work, but often when I hear them talk about humanitarian assistance, I often, Yes, there are a lot of structures. We have this great coordination mechanisms. We have great frameworks for assessments and whatever. And we have a lot of clearly defined responsibilities in theory. But from my point of view, yeah, it's the reality is often a lot more complex and very, very context specific. It is If you look at a, a humanitarian crisis, as I said, Beirut is completely different from Nepal. And these are both sudden onset disasters. If you bring in things like Syria, long-term poor access crisis, uh, things change a lot. And if you go to DRC with decades of history of crisis, again, it's different. And so uh, to bring the punchline right at the beginning, it's, of course, it's It's really hard to talk about what's the reason for this because I think the reason is always context specific. Yeah, it's like when I call, write an email to my IT support and say, "Guys, my computer is not working." They will be like, "Tell us what is not working." No, it's not working. Help me. <laughs> They're like, "Tell us what's the symptoms." And yeah, it's 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 a bit like this with humanitarian crisis. You cannot say uh, what is what is working and what is not working without knowing a lot about the specific context. And it can be that I was I plucked out my cable or that something internally is wrong. I don't know. And humanitarian crises are just like that. I think. Yeah. And there's a lot of interconnection as well with the blast in Beirut and Syria. But in your context, as you're saying, I'm just intrigued by just how are things now and what do you think is specific and what do you think is universal, perhaps? In the case of Beirut, you mean? Yeah, let's use that example. Yeah, I think in this context, 
I don't, I must admit, since we, I think it's 30 days, we are 30 days now into it. And I'm not a Lebanon expert at all, but there's already a few things that are visible from these first 30 days. Of course, a very strong local community, especially the engagement of volunteers. Of course, it's in a big city, yeah. First of all, an indicator for rather resilient context compared to something which is very remote and, let's say, underprivileged, yeah. And so I haven't traveled to uh, to Beirut after the blast myself, but a lot of colleagues have. And what they reported back, of course, is that you would be surprised to see how quick the rebuilding took place in the in the beginning, especially the debris removal and all these type of things. There's still a lot of difficult stuff going on, but it's quick. And I think this very powerful local actors in this context, and at the same time being aware that, yeah, also a lot of money going to international NGOs, this is, uh, again, a little bit of a problem. But yeah, I think these are some of the very specific factors. But especially another point is the interconnection with the Syria crisis. A very simple example, some of our member organizations right after the blast, they had to get one of their mobile medical stations, I think their facilities, uh, they had to take it from their uh, refugee work context in the more eastern part of Lebanon to Beirut to support people there. But they could only leave it like that for about a week because it had to go back to the situation of the refugees and to, uh, to support them there. And yeah, these are some of the specific aspects, I would say, of this crisis. But it's hard. I'm not an expert on that, I must admit. Yeah. yeah. It's lovely to hear about the most recent humanitarian operations you've been working on. And um, I know that a lot of our members, they're very keen to help and I'm not sure you said you're more on the tech side where you are and there's people on the field. Is there a way to demystify what humanitarian operations are about? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think for me, one of the greatest myths could trigger some kind of discussion about what humanitarian assistance is. Yeah, because especially what the work of international humanitarian assistance is. Because there is this general idea of humanitarians uh, being like an international organization and there's a catastrophe or whatever, disaster, and people fly in from other countries and help and save lives. And as I said, it's, it's not like that. First of all, the and this is the most important part, who are the first responders who are the first responders yeah sometimes you have an international ngo at place who is by coincidence there or not totally by coincidence but because they know the area is very disaster prone but in general it's, it's the people uh, on the ground there that's something uh, you could observe for example after the cyclone idai last year in mozambique i was there i think two weeks after it hit Mozambique. And yeah, it were the actors from local hospitals and local people who did the first response. And it's always like this. And humanitarians, we should not 
take ourselves too serious in this regard, we come usually come later. And my impression is this is a very dynamic setting, so it's hard to make predictions here because it depends on the crisis that we have. But more work is done in a later phase. That's my impression, especially in this. Yes, after a blast, there's a lot of stuff going on in the first month and so. But uh, what happens afterwards, also very, very important. And their international humanitarian organizations can support a lot. And my personal definition of humanitarian assistance is not the kind of assistance that you get within, let's say, the first three months or which is rapid whatever. For me, the definition of humanitarian assistance is the type of assistance that is driven by the so-called humanitarian imperative, which says that support, uh, let's take all action to elevate human suffering. And that's no matter who you have in front of you, that it's merely based on that you do impartial assistance and uh, not driven by political views or whatever. And that your work is based on needs. And it's not so, for me, other people may disagree, for me it's not so important to have, the timing is not as important as this aspect. But get back to the myth aspect, the key message is here. Actually, it's the international NGOs, yes, they are important in many ways, but the people actually doing the work, they are already there. They are in Cyclonidae, there are people from Mozambique. In case of Lebanon, I just had a long call with a local NGO from the Syrian-Lebanese border. And they are there. They know the context. And this is also the people you have to start with when you want to develop something. The locals and the NGOs are there to amplify and bring attention. What do you think? Yeah. I can only give you my view because there are a lot of views on that topic and you may interview other people from other organizations who may disagree. I think we are there to support the organizations in the, for example, let's say in Lebanon with resources that are needed and based on, yeah, actually based, and that's again where the context kicks in, it depends. That's, it's, that's often a problem when you come from a technical side. One of our trainers here, we also, by, by the way, for example, we do also do a lot of trainings. He once said, if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Or if you are just random choice, WFP, World Food Program, every crisis looks like a food crisis. And that's... Um, and, no offense to uh, WFP, uh, not at all. But what I'm trying to say here is often we have some certain expertise, be it a technical expertise or whatever, and we come there and, yeah, there's some kind of a misfit there because what the actual process should be, you go there, you talk to people, like oh, people tell you in advance, hey, guys, we need this and that, could you support? And then you deliver. And this can be very different. You can hear very different things from um, DRC as opposed to, yeah, let's say Japan after a tsunami or whatever. So, what's your wisdom? What's a takeaway there? You know, the everyday challenges of organizing and coordinating operations, and you've got all these different points of view. And how do you approach things? I'm curious to just see how hammer nail approach all the different approaches what happened from that training what did you learn 
One key aspect here is that listening is key. Uh, it's all about people and it's, it's very context specific. The way I try to approach things is understanding the context first. For, and this is a good example because, for example, my organization is all, I give you an example from another area of our work that we haven't talked about so much yet. One other mandate in the context of quality assurance is we do capacity uh, development for our member organizations or for humanitarian workers all over the world, which is an important part of quality assurance. And one is the sphere standards. And one it is a coincidence that we were actually supposed to be holding a sphere training in Lebanon this month. Won't happen. I can tell you in advance because of the blast and because of COVID, we had to change. Of course, we switch a lot to online trainings and these type of things. But these kind of trainings, we really want to have them uh, in a physical presence because there's so much interaction going on there. And one, for example, speaking about approaches, one of the first approaches that we do when we do these kind of trainings is that understand the context. Where are we? Who are the people who want to be trained? What do they want to learn? And... Uh, finding the right partners. And I think that's not only what we do, that's that's what more or less all of our organizations do. Of course, and usually depending on the context, our member organizations, they have, in certain contexts, they, the structures are there. And in other contexts, they, they have to be built quickly. For example, if you have something in Kenya, yeah, Kenya is a hub point for, for everything in Nairobi. All of our member organizations have offices there. And we had in November, I think, we had some floodings in the north of Kenya. And of course, then our organizations are there. They can just act. But for example, Yemen is a more challenging context. Or also Nepal, some organizations had to yeah. simply build up new offices there. Yeah. So, Leo, that's so important what you mentioned about listening and given the tech that we're talking about, how do you use that? What do you do? What's deployed? And just walk us through that. If you've got some thoughts on that, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, it's great that you ask this question to me because I'm working, yeah, in, as I said, in intra, how do you call it? Intra-organizational, yeah? in between organizations and especially in between organizations of different sizes. We have very, some of our members are very small and have capacities, let's say, in very specific areas, so sector-wise, and others are huge, like World Vision or Care International. So if you look inside those organizations, you will see that there is a lot of, well, they have their IT structure and their stuff going on. And the problem is, as soon as the actors get more and more diverse, standardization kind of disappears and you end up in various forms. And it gets worse when the, um, yeah, the digital context is also very fragile. If you have your partners sitting in, say, uh, Bukavu in, in Congo, where you basically have good internet, but not very stable, electricity uh, shortages all over the place. Yeah, it gets quite challenging. I do not want to go too much into the details also about hardware problems in the place, yeah, when you have your computers there and something goes wrong and you want to 
have them repaired and they come back and they kind of change your Ferrari might turn into a bicycle or whatever. Things like that happen. But of course, there are other organizations who have great infrastructure in place. Um, I think there are a lot of, from my point of view, there's still tech-wise, a lot of standardization is missing so far. A lot of Excel sheets being sent from here to there. And there are very good platforms, of course. If you have like the UN virtual OSOC as uh, one platform is actually very good. What I think what matters is that you have this, I think like a frame where people can share information and whatever you put in, it can be shared. Because if you look at virtual OSOC, you have a, a disaster and people write very detailed reports, very standardized assessment things or whatever. But then in another disaster, you suddenly have some random comments of actors from anywhere who for some reason connected to this place. They have never worked with the system before and they treat it differently. And again, this also brings me to the problem at hand. A lot of standards happen on an international level. Yeah, the international NGOs know about it. But what if the local NGOs are the drivers, as I said, what they mostly are? Do they know about which technology to use? Can they use them? Do they have access? And if not, you only have a part of the humanitarian community using this technology and this is a big challenge yeah i'm seeing like individual actors on the ground and, mm. and not from an ngo and and just yeah the volume of yeah. data coming in absolutely and the standardization of that and all of these things and uh, the coordination of it i think i can hear brent's voice in the back of my head wanting to know more about just um how can we help organizations get training through IATI? Um, yes, to start with the difficulties and moving forward to a more constructive side. As I mentioned before, the hammer nail problem is here. Of course, we are entering the digital age and this does affect humanitarian assistance a lot. And a lot did change already, of course. It's a lot of processes go a lot faster and so on. But again, the problem is, and I'm constantly thinking about this aspect, where to start and where to solve this issue that we have, that we have technology and also certain knowledge that you guys need to move forward. I imagine the best thing would be to give you some kind of indicator or something a very specific small aspect of humanitarian assistance that you could develop further from, yeah? That would make a lot of sense from a technological viewpoint. Then again, we have this issue that I talked about before that we have, yeah, let's say the context and every crisis is different and needs are different. So how to bring this together? And I think what would be helpful as an approach is to become very regional specific, to work in a very specific context on whatever project you like or what you think would be helpful. Yeah. Um, I think this is also the, um, I'm not aware of all initiatives going on in this area and please forgive me if there maybe some of your listeners are, are standing up now and saying, yeah, we are already doing this. Do your homework, guy. It might be the case. But uh, I think 
we have a lot of interesting things going on on a macro level. But for example, if you would dive into this context of Lebanon now and the crisis, yeah, and try to get in contact with uh, with a strong local NGO who knows the context very well and speak to them and think about uh, finding a solution which may only work for this context or bring something there, this may be an interesting start. But that's just the first thing that comes to my mind. I cannot... Uh, I haven't tested <laughs> this idea. No, it makes well. sense. You know, the training and the context, yeah. and you keep saying again and yeah. again what that is. And, you know, mm. the standardization, it's nice to have, but it's, um, yeah. Yeah. To give you another example, kind of an example, because I don't quite remember the name. Um, I think it. I will send it to you later afterwards. There was one data collection initiative going on i think mostly by french ngos i forgot the name i think technologically it was not super uh, super sophisticated but it was very good example of bringing the use of humanitarian data a step forward and this was developed specifically for i think a very central african context i think it was either only drc or a little bit beyond i will i have to check it out and send it to you and that was a good example there yeah, that was an example of okay we have a context let's try something new and if it works here maybe it works somewhere else but it's it's one positive example from my viewpoint it's a great start and yeah you can adapt i guess it's better yeah. than Definitely. We've kind of talked a little bit about Africa and I know you've been interested and done things and you founded MAGMO in 2015, I believe. Do you want to tell us that side of your world? Yeah, of um, course. I'd love to. I think in the humanitarian space, we, we're always learning from other areas that just somehow we need to pay attention to. So it'd be really interesting. You're involved in two things. What's similar? What's different? What have you learned? What, yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. I think in 2015, me and two friends of mine who both worked in the humanitarian sector for a long time, I think uh, one of them is uh, he has like 20 years experience and most of the time spending in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And um, they came across Moringa. Moringa is a so-called superfood. Yeah, it's actually, it's a very high nutrition value. You can create a nice cream. I do not want to turn in this. It's not my organization, but it's a, it's a hand cream with Moringa. So, and um, you can use it as a food fortifier, for example. And so it's also very interesting in food crisis context. For example, there were some very interesting studies on the effect of micronutrient deficits in, in children and uh, using the supplementation with uh, Moringa. It helps a lot. It's a very impressive plant. You can, I could talk about it for hours, but in short, it's a great resource, a very interesting uh, plant, and it grows very, very well in East Africa and especially in Congo. And yeah, so the basic idea was not, well, the humanitarian sector often works in, uh, in the context of projects, yeah, to try something with a, a long-term perspective 
And we, in 2015, we founded a farmer's cooperative, Magmo RDC. And since then, we try to uh, grow and market the plant in Central slash East Africa. And it's moving forward slowly, but the core aspect, I think, is already uh, quite successful. It's the market in, especially in Congo, for these kind of project uh, products, sorry, is growing. And yeah, check it out. I think mac-mo.com. Checked it out. The Miracle Tree, it's called. And yeah, yeah, that's what Moringa is, uh, exactly. Any benefits? And I'm just curious how are the locals taking to this? Is, you know, what's the benefit there? The sustainability? I know that you're working, you know, closely with making this valuable for everybody. And then from a humanitarian point of view, how has that, because mm. I know how much you care about disaster relief and for someone like you to be doing this i'd love to hear your process and how you approach a for-profit as a humanitarian yeah i mean the for-profit aspect especially is it is for profit but not so much for becoming rich <laughs> humanitarians are usually not very good at this <laughs> and but for creating some kind of economic uh, sustainability. Yeah. yeah, Rich takes on a different sort of... Um, yeah, yeah. E exactly. But what I want to say is that, I mean, it is a problem. You have a crisis, you get resources for uh, dealing with that crisis, but as soon as the financing runs out, you have a problem. That's a thing we experienced in the local actors in uh, Mozambique experience a lot. I spoke to a doctor in a in Beira in a hospital and she told me about their funding streams. It really goes like this. And this is really hard to get some stability there. And stability, I think, is incredibly important. So the idea is to build up a business and to work on something where everybody has to earn their money with, let's say, a good approach, a good product. Interesting. Something that also on the consumer side is very supporting and yeah you can find this moringa product mostly in terms of powder which looks like a fancy medicine but it's not much more than the really the leaves turn to powder and it's it's like it's eating a salad a very very healthy salad but it's easier to add it in the food and this is something which resonates very well with a certain consumption habit, let's say, in, uh, in DRC. It's, it fits a lot just like to put it in your food like a spice, but it's more like a, yeah, a healthy salad and that's cool. But it evolved, again, the core part here, and this is linked to the kind of humanitarian spirit I was talking about before. Um, the core idea here is about trust and long-term relationships. I think this is one of the key messages that all of us should take away when we work in the humanitarian context is that, yeah, we need more trustful long-term relationships. I think that's uh, if we do this, we can accomplish a lot more than just sudden short-term activities. That sounds and, great. I'm just yeah, remembering just your last. economics background and what yes, kind of exactly. does this live in? Is it a green economy? I'm super, super into like anything that can be an example and a success story of it sounds really super super beneficial for everybody 
Yeah, in, in terms of success story and these type of things, you said my economics background, that's exactly where this is coming from. I have an uh, education in economics, so I do believe in <laughs> incentives and these type of things. And that my understanding also of humanitarian assistance is also more about, it's, it's not so much about what is often called aid. Yeah, Aid is not what we are what we should be doing and actually literally not what we're really doing it's it's more like support and working together and in this case of magmo there's no aid aspect whatsoever yeah aid not aid yeah kind of yeah but let's do it on a local level let's say with a lot of congolese actors in charge let's do it not in a huge multinational company that goes there and um, has other interests that's in it's what we were as well. earlier just the, the whole importance of collaboration and those relationships and and that lovely you know as you said long-term view I think yeah that's and the success story here is uh, you have a product in shops in Bukavu in uh, Kinshasa I think and 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 in other places Goma and so and it's a Congolese product from there it's a powerful product yeah and this is uh, i think this is important that's a very helpful way to move forward the downside of private business is you never know as an enterprise you never know what will what the future will bring but it's more in your own hands and let's see what will what will happen yeah i love how we pivoted from all the humanitarian and tech to this beautiful magmo story i wonder this is a fun question what would you love to be able to do in the future with technology can you think of a kind of science fiction futuristic application you'd love to see made possible <laughs> how's that i would love to see um, I would love to see a technology that empowers a very, very certain type of humanitarian professionals who are doing 90% of the work and whose voices are not as often heard as they should be. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about some colleagues, for example, I met in, in my last training in Nairobi, where we trained people from East Africa, actually, from South Sudan, Somalia, Ethiopia. And how can we kind of amplify these voices inside of all this noise that we have? I, I wish I could give you a clear indicator of what defines these kind of people. I, probably not possible, but most of them, are, <laughs> except for awesomeness i think most of them uh, they're doing great work and they really understood the the context and i would love to get in touch with these people quicker there are a lot of people who do amazing work and sometimes i find it you have a situation where you work on a project and you have a set of people who work in your team and of course, especially when you work in a in a country context where the educational system it's not it's not working that well, you find some people in your team where you think, okay, it's not working that well. But at the same time, you have these great, great, wonderful people who are very structured and uh, and do 
straightforward humanitarian assistance, but you cannot find them by their position or even by location. They could show up anywhere. Yeah. And how can we support these people more to to get in more important positions? That would be a great question to answer somehow technologically. Maybe I'm too naive in that context, but that was just the first thing that came to my mind. Maybe there are a lot of other things, but... It's lovely to know this exists in remote places that you probably... It sounds like there's a lot of awesomeness for sure. And um, yeah. just how would you maybe recommend tech community to approach our, our members and listeners in humanitarian AI context to approach and explore partnering with humanitarian organizations, what can be done to maybe stitch all of that up? Have you seen anything that's happened maybe organically out mm -hmm. of this training you've been involved in or is it still kind of left hanging? I must admit it's a difficult question, absolutely. I mean, at some point in time, it, it will answer itself, but of course the question is in what way. I think the, well, again, be very open to the kind of actors you talk to. It does not have to be the great international NGO in the first place that you approach. It's trying to find somebody where you can really build a long-term relationship and try to build it up from there. It's a difficult thing to have these two aspects because I know what you need as tech people to move forward in a way. And I'm so sorry for this description here but that's the only only way i can talk about it i love the way you're talking it's i've been captivated from the minute we started talking and i think there is a question that's a bit more current on what you've been working on now i'm not sure if the lebanon blast is something that we can use is there anything there that you might need members to help with or anything else we love to hear what you need That's a very good question. You can do me a favor in one way. It's about spreading the words of certain ideas that are great from my point of view. This is one. This is the sphere standards. The sphere is a, like a collection of standards in, say, best practices in humanitarian assistance. It was developed after a little bit of history here, 1994, Rwanda genocide. Not only human tragedy, but also a tragedy for the, the humanitarian sector. It was so-called the, the end of humanitarian innocence that I think 40,000 people or something like this had died in the, in the camps, in, especially in, in Goma, Bukavu. And there was a huge evaluation, a joint evaluation of many, many actors in this humanitarian field. And they came to the conclusion, okay, If uh, humanitarian agencies would have done a better job, then a lot of lives could have been saved. And that's, I totally believe that. So they started to develop this sphere project. And it basically, it's a dynamic thing. There was the first standard somewhere around 90 to 2000. I'm not, I'm not so sure. I have to look it up. But there was the first book published and then they moved on and on. And I think this is like the fifth one now, a revised edition. That? Sorry to interrupt, Leo. Who published that? Who's the um, this is published by an NGO. Um, 
it started as a project. Now they are an NGO, which is called uh, Sphere. So Sphere office is an NGO. It's based in Geneva. They are cool people there, but they have a very interesting approach. They have a so-called focal point approach. That is, we have this office in Geneva, but not each country in the world, but more or less a lot of countries and a lot of regions have their own so-called focal point. For example, in East Africa, you have IAWG, Interagency Working Group. They are like the focal point for Sphere. They are like, if you are in this area and you talk about Sphere, you should talk to them. In Germany, it's my organization together with two of our members, the Juanita and the ASB. And yeah, so um, for example, we publish or kind of publish the, the German translation of this book, for example. But you can get it online on spherestandards.org, I think. And the sphere standards have two sides, yeah, like a yin and yang aspect. One is very technical, very, very technical. This famous standard about 50 liters of water per day per person. You can use this as a number if, in case you have no further information and all these type of things. Very, very quantitative also. But at the same time, it speaks a lot about yeah, the basic principles of humanitarian assistance and most notably about the so-called core humanitarian standard, which is like a set of commitments about what is important in humanitarian assistance. And I can highly recommend you guys to kind of use this as a reference point in whatever you are developing because this is a the cool thing about this is this comes from the practical side yeah it comes from the it's not a no not so much a theoretical framework it's completely the other way around and it's disaster relief 101 handbook or guide but does it address what tech can do that's not the basic uh, target group, not the basic audience for this book. This is for humanitarian practitioners, especially for those who are new to the field. For example, you have a disaster in a situation where you've never had one before, then it's very likely that organizations go there and do very quick trainings on these standards. Yeah, So it's not addressed at tech people, but if you want to go more into very, very straightforward approach of how humanitarian assistance should be done, this may be helpful and it's a reference point. Well, yeah. um, any kind of insights, takeaways you'd like to share before we just wrap things up today? I think if you take one thing away from this little talk, it's a lot about participation. Yeah, It's a lot about engaging the people affected by disasters and the organizations who are there on the ground. That's important. And this is also something that a lot of our member organizations start to, uh, they do it more and more. And, and uh, that's a cool thing. I love your um, candidness and sharing so much with us today. We learned a lot from you and we thank you very much for everything you're doing. Leo, Frey, thank you. That brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.